Enter now the age of apocalypse, Shiga, with your hosts, Dayspring and Scott Free. The name's Cable. Remember it. And the only people who can stop apocalypse are the mutants known as Dayspring, Scott Free, and Michelle. This is Captain America, and we need to defeat apocalypse. Scott, we have Anne Nascenti on the podcast today. Yeah, uh, she came in to talk to us about uh, our favorite and yours, uh, Longshot. I feel so sorry for people because I every time around this year, I just talk about Longshot. I, I've read it every year for like 17 years because I bought like the hardcover at like Midtown Comics during the holidays when I was re- really missing home and Miami because I had just moved to New York. And now particularly this year, 17 years later, I'm rereading it and missing New York now that I've moved back to Miami. So this it, it, this just makes me feel so good talking to her. And as people will see in the interview, she's incredible. Like, oh my God. You know, that's what you get for leaving New York to return to the mojo verse that is Florida. (laughs) (laughs) Well, you know, it's funny, a lot of her perspective and, and, and stuff like that, uh, when she's talking about mojo and sort of the kind, what did you guys call like the eighties bogles who like came in and destroyed companies? I didn't know the answer. Oh yeah. Like, like, uh, like corporate raiders, like, uh, barbarians at the gate. Like that was, that was the eighties. It was like, gung-ho destructive capitalism go in there rip everything out uh, a lot of gold everywhere and which know, is how you would describe florida <laughs> yeah uh you know, huge um, <laughs> but you know it, it, it's funny because the interview you know for those at home we always have like a shared doc and we were just constantly revising it during this interview because Anne is so incredibly intelligent we talk about Elon Musk and Twitter and social media and gender fluidity and how Longshot is sort of emblematic of that, not only back then, but even in today's world. Yeah, it's it's very uh, prescient and a lot of the themes and lessons uh, hit just as hard today as they did back in uh, 1985. And it kind of broke my heart when we were talking before we hit record she doesn't even get like the new like mojo box set with long shot action figure. Like, what do we have to do to get someone at Hasbro or any other company to send her a long shot? Like, she literally created this mullet fucker right here, and she doesn't even get a a, a comp action figure of him. Hey, you put some respect on the mullet, but um, <laughs> listen, no, I the mullet. It, it's it's the industry and uh that's that's something that's really got to change i don't know this did you order the mojo box set uh i did not uh i ordered spiral and long shot and i just need a dazzler and i can put it with the shatter star and then we'll have the whole family 
Yeah, we did not ask Anne, for those of you at home, about Dazzler and Shatterstar because she just isn't caught up with those stories. But we will be having her again and we'll give her those issues to read. She was very adamant about, like, I'm happy to react to it and talk about it, but she hasn't metabolized those stories. So, you know, we we didn't want to blindside her with... Even I get confused with it. It's Shatterstar go is from the future comes back to the past is a genetic sample for long shot and then of course him and dazzler get together she gets pregnant she gives birth and then her memories are erased by a future long or uh shatterstar did i get that right it's been a minute since i read the peter david issue yeah and shatterstar might also be a guy in a coma named benny russell um but we just we kind of ignore that can you um, imagine you just like we ambushed the creator of Longshot with that information? I think she would just be like, "Okay, I gotta go." Bye. Look, I'm I'm a gigantic Shatterstar fan, and all of that information makes me uncomfortable. So enjoy the interview if you love it. Let us know if you don't. Well, screw you. luck. <laughs> Fuck you. And Longshot is our book club pick for December 18th. So start reading it, and we'll discuss on the 18th. And. We are so happy to have you on the podcast today. And of course, you've returned to the X-Men comics with X-Men Legends, your long shot issues. Yes, it's been a blast. And it's been strange. I had to reread the long shot series, which I hadn't read since I wrote it. And so what happened to me was I realized that um, rather than doing some kind of specific what happened to Longshot after the miniseries, I did a circular loop to sort of say, well, here's one little adventure, but I'm not really going to go into what happened to him. And I think the thing that struck me from the original series was, was how much fun I had with the Infernal Trio the triad of Mojo, Majordomo, and Spiral, because they're so nasty and they're so kind of in love, hate. I mean, I reference uh, Sartre's No Exit, like what if you were trapped in hell with two people where the unrequited love circle just kept going backwards and forwards, you know, who hates and who loves who. And so it, and it's also very familial, you know, the, so I decided to to play with that triad and also to because Longshot was a lot of it was about media, because back then we all were like watching TV too much. And so we're talking way pre-internet and um, it's it's like those addictions have only increased so I thought, well, I can't really, because it's set back in time, I can't really play with what's happened post-internet, but I can, at the same time, kind of play with the kind of um, king baby. You know, Mojo was always a king baby and, you know, kind of like a oblivious tyrant. And we have so many of those now that I was able to just think about, like back then he was kind of based on like a Rupert Murdoch type, somebody who was buying up, gobbling up media in order to control the airwaves and media conglomerates. And so 
you know, I was able to do what I think fans expect, which is a certain amount of satirical take on media. And for me, the fun was to return to that triad, which I had never, I had ended the series wanting more of them. You know, poor Longshot, as usual, kind of got left out of everything as he always does. I mean- It's sort of odd because he's so, he's all love. You know, he's just, he's, he's, you know, he's a revolutionary. He wants to fight for his people. He's really, really nice. (laughs) Girl, you know, boys and girls love him. Yes, we do. (laughs) It's sort of like, and I always meant him to be like a, a David Bowie, Ziggy Stardust, you know, is he male, is he female, androgynous, binary character. And, you know, I had a moment when I was like, well, if I'm going to return to Longshot, I should like play with that more in a kind of current landscape. But I ended up just saying, you know what, it's too intriguing to play with um, the triad again. And I'm not sure... You know, it, comic books is a it's a strange medium for a nice character to get any traction. You know, the the characters that get traction are the villains, the anti heroes, the more kind of complicated characters. And so, I think Longshot designed to be like a nice human. <laughs> it's hard to get traction on him. Well, we definitely see those those seeds planted of him just being a nice human, him being very pure, and especially how his powers work in the original miniseries. But before we dive deeper into that, I, I, I am curious, though, what was that call like from like Marvel? Was it Jordan D. White that they were like, hey, we have this series called X-Men Legends, where we're kind of bridging the gap in stories from the past and bringing on the original creators? What was it like? them approaching you and and your immediate reaction to being able to visit him i had just done electro 100 for marvel and it was like you know they called me and said do you want to do electra and have her fight typhoid for 30 pages or however long it was and i was like you got to be kidding of course you know (laughs) Electra is a character that I had never touched before because back when she was created and then killed, there was a lot of reverence for what Frank Miller had done. So she was kind of untouchable out of respect to him. So for the four years that I wrote Daredevil, I never had her in the series out of respect to his notion that her death was death, you know? And so she wasn't brought back for a long time out of respect to him. So, uh, you know, so I guess she's been brought back. So I felt like, okay, I can have finally have fun with Electra and Typhoid. And, um, and that was a blast to do because the idea was that they had possibly met in an asylum long ago and Electra being the more sophisticated person tries to kind of help typhoid a little bit like you know "Ah, you're a little crazy but own it you know like be who you are and and it and it and it ties into kind of like some 
you know, women are called crazy. There's a long history of women being, you know, shoved into asylums, given hysterectomies, shock treatment, because they were, you know, not behaving like a, a wife, a mother or whatever. And so there I've I've heard some like chatter lately about re-owning the word crazy, like Love saying that. Like crazy, where is this word crazy? We're all crazy. I mean, aren't we all crazy? We're you know, all a little mad down here. We're all a little mad. And it's sort of like somebody once said something like in an ins in a in an insane world, the or in a in a in a what was that quote? Now we're gonna have to find it. It was like in an insane society, the only choice is insanity or something like that. Anyway, we'll edit that in, I guess. <laughs> <laughs> Hang on, it's let's see. I like the idea of reinventing and owning words that used to have a bad meaning for a particular group. And I think women being called crazy, hysterical, I think it's a like typhoid, Electrotel's typhoid, like just own it you yeah. know yeah and and your original concept with typhoid was that you wanted to have that amalgamation of female identity back in the 80s right when you you had yeah. her and, and sort of make no apologies and she owns it and she's that yeah. whole spectrum and byproduct of yeah. those unfair feminine standards from 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 30 years ago yeah, and I think we didn't really understand uh, multiple personality back then. Like, I think now people say there is no such thing, that it's more like a bipolar or, you know, another complicated. And now these days with, you know, it's becoming, you know, binary is also like from a young age, people don't know who they are. And so there is... It's it's sort of like um, I could do a critique of my own story, wondering, did I correctly handle her craziness? I think she she probably would have made more sense as a bipolar character, but back then, multiple personality wasn't really understood yet as man a combination manic depressive bipolar. So um, so yeah. I, just a quick question before I kick it back to Scott. We got a question about um, Alice Eve's performance of Typhoid Mary in the Netflix series. Did you were you able to weigh in on that by by any means? Did you see it? Oh no, I loved it. I loved her. I mean, it's very it's really hard to not love when you're. I mean, you know, the first in some Daredevil movie. Typhoid was in a Daredevil movie and she was barely used and I still yeah. loved it. And, <laughs> you know, Blackheart was in a Ghost Rider. I mean, it's yeah. really difficult when it's your toy, your baby. Yeah. You know, your baby, your kid gets up on stage and can't sing and you love it anyway. <laughs> <laughs> it's sort of like... Um, I and and it's funny because the dare the the team of screenwriters that wrote the Daredevil movie with Typhoid called me up out of the blue when the movie was coming out and said, 
we're so sorry, but we really, we really tried to do all, you know, four personalities of typhoid and it just all got cut from the script before shooting. They sent me their original script to say, see, we were way more respectful to her. You know, and I thought that was <laughs> sweet of them to do that. But um, yeah, so I loved the Alice Eve performance and I didn't, um, yeah, and but it's it's like I said, it's like, you know, it's very hard to critique your own kid when they get out on stage and and try to sing a song. <laughs> Listen, I loved I, I believe it, she was in Iron Fist. That's where they brought her in. Yeah. And that Electra movie, that's Daredevil spinoff. I love that. I mean, 2005, six, whatever era that was. Sorry, yeah. Scott's looking at me like you idiot. <laughs> no, 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 no. Um, well, like speaking of like like your kids or like toys, like what was it like? to write like major domo again because he's always been like one of the funnier bits yeah. of like mojo's world and like it was great just to like see him again well it's it's like i think that what happened they came in and like issue three of a six issue series and i didn't quite it, it took me all the way to the end to realize i was having more fun with spiral mojo and major domo and um I always saw Mojo and Major Domo as a couple, as a couple of queens, you know, in, in this, in this, I hope that's not an offensive term these days. But, not at uh, all. So we call each other I, queen on DMs all the time. Okay. So I, I had a lot of fun with like amping that up a bit, but also they're all three of them are kind of idiot chess players like they're all playing a long game on each other major domo is the fool in the court you know he's like that great pbs series i claudius you know where um the lead pretends to be uh like he can't talk right he can't walk right and he kind of is the mastermind who is projecting that he's kind of an idiot so that he can listen in on the key conversations and quietly make his moves. Like if I were to come back to those characters, you know, it, again, I would definitely have uh, Major Domo having played a long game, pull a sting on Mojo. And the same with Spiral. I mean, the series, the, the X-Men Legends series was a lot about like, you know, sexism in the studio system long ago. And Mojo as a obvious, you know, casting couch type. Abusive. You know? The things he yeah. says to her, dog. Yeah. But I noticed that shift in Spiral where she's here like, I'm not your dog. You can't talk to me like that. Like, yeah. I, she... I love that element you brought to to the recent series. For the recent and it's it's it is in the first series. She's yeah. kind of like the two of them are like he's like their their bad baby that keeps having meltdowns and they you know <laughs> they put him in the mirror room. I couldn't get the mirror room back in these two issues. There wasn't enough room, but the mirror room where all he sees is his own reflection like a total narcissist. And, and somehow that calms him down, <laughs> you know? So, but yeah, this, um, having, when Mark and, uh, when Mark Basso called me 
And I have to say that like Drew and Mark are amazing editors. They just, they, one of the, the main crafts of being an editor is to like know that the seeds of an idea that might seem like not quite an idea yet, how to build and how to pull that out of a creator rather than saying, well, that one doesn't work. You know, it's it's like it's a harder job to look at it and say, well, what is this writer artist trying to say? And then helping them pull the story out. And then at every turn, Mark and Drew step in and they make like the greatest edits and ideas. So, I mean, a strong editor, it, it kind of, you know, reminded me of back in the day of learning watching Louise Simonson when I was her assistant, watching how she took all of Chris's like a billion ideas and figured out how to just be a sheep herder and nudge him in this direction or that direction. So I like to say that I think I became a clone of Wheezy after I learned <laughs> her method with Chris and then developed like this trust this kind of gentle trust where you, no idea is too stupid because you don't want a creator to curl up in a ball and think they're worthless you know instead you you kind of bring out you you grow the idea and so i mean those guys were great and i'm just looking at this crazy cover i mean it is so good this cover, cover. It's i gorgeous. love how he wove mojo into the background with all <laughs> these screens and it's just like i wish they or i wish they brought in more kind of what they call off model or off brand um creators to do covers that are like satires really because it's a it's a real satire cover you know this it's is uh, Kevin Eastman, who's the Ninja Turtle guy. Well, I mean, listen, you have two very big characters on that cover that we absolutely love. And that's something Scott and I were talking about. Yeah, like, um, why why did you decide to bring in Kitty and Wolverine, like, specifically out of, like, the 80s X-Men? Well, I mean, Mark and Drew told me they could have, that I could have anyone I wanted but um, I realized that when I wanted to get into what is it like to be in one of Mojo's snuff films, basically, what is it like? And I wanted two X-Men, one that would be young enough and naive enough to be hoodwinked, which would be Kitty. I looked at the X-Men and, you know, a lot of them are sort of too seasoned to fall for mojo's shenanigans and then i wanted uh wolverine to be able to be the one that pulls kitty out of the delusion yeah. of that they're in a movie you know so um so that i chose the most naive and the most seasoned you know of the two x-men for this specifically well, you have a specific line in there that I thought was so telling about Mojo and the metatextuality surrounding him and the studio exec, but Mojo will pitch you against a person you love. I, I'm paraphrasing what you wrote, but I mean, I just think that 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 one panel where that's mentioned and you see Wolverine and Kitty going at it, I mean, that's 
in, in terms of this Machiavellian approach to Mojo, that's all I need to know about him. And it was such a great, that was such a great line you wrote. Well, I think also like the triad is always trolling each other. I mean, the three of them troll each other constantly and they, the cruelty just rolls off them. They're just like, "Eh, okay. Yeah. And in real life, people who are trolling each other, you can do damage. They can, they can hate you, cancel you, you know, whatever, never speak to you again. So it's kind of like, Mojo's applying what he knows of daily life, which is constant trolling and trickery and lies to other people thinking, eh, it's not that bad. It's what happens to me every day, you know? So Well, he also has that line where he says like, I lose people I love too. And it just rolls again. I'm paraphrasing the line, but yeah, I mean, exactly that. And it's also um, because X-Men Legends is in some ways like, let's bring out the old timers and have them sing their greatest hits again, you know? <laughs> it's, and they're so, it's fun to do, but you you have to understand, you know, these days, uh, current continuity is what readers are interested in because, you know, there's... There's not going to be that many surprises in a series that supposedly took place in the past. So you have to like find a place to play with. Um, And one of the things I did was I took a deep dive into who Kitty is today. So Wolverine, you know, when I was the editor of the X-Men, everybody wanted to use Wolverine. Like you had back then, you know, when you're in charge of your books. So you had, you know, Mark Grunewald in charge of the Avengers. You had Salakrup and Danny Fingeroth in charge of Spider-Man. If you wanted a guest star, you had to go down to their office and they would say, sure. But when the X-Men started to get really really popular it was pretty much every day people knocking on my door can i have wolverine can i have wolverine you know so you had to kind of like say you know we're gonna overuse this dude but at the same time the x-men as the top selling book we did lend them out a lot because it helps the sales of smaller books so it was considered like something that you did to help books that weren't selling so well But then I think he just got so overused and saturated over the years. So I said, you know what? I'm not going to play with Wolverine. He just is who he is in this series. But Kitty, who went on to be Kate Pride, I thought, let me seed this a lot. So all her lines are kind of like, Lines that are meant as winks to her future. Yeah. You know, she's like, you know, I think I could lead it to, I think I could do this, you know, like, so, so that's what I wanted to do with her was show, even though she's only 14 at the time of this series to show that she already had a kind of feminist sensibility and a, and a, and a understanding of her destiny. 
Well, one of the things I think you're doing, you did really well in these two issues. And I think it's what every writer should do if you're going to have to tell a story that's set in the past. You you respect the continuity and the past setting it's in, but you also have the foresight of the future. And that's a very difficult like rope to walk. But one of the threads I wanted to pull on because I was really thinking, I read Longshot every every holiday. It, it's sort of a comfort for me. It's been a tradition. I just moved from New York, but it's been a tradition for like almost 20 years now. Oh, cool. And I couldn't really vocalize why I gravitate back to this, this series. And I think I was listening in, in preparation to this interview with you. I was listening to this reviewer talk about your Daredevil run. And everything Matt was trying to fight, you know, coming out of Born Again, you know, he's kind of a cleansed man. And now he's fighting this world that has so much corruption and this future generation that's doomed to repeat that sort of violence. And so when I think of Longshot, I see this hero who comes, he's kind of like a blank slate in this world that's consumed with headlines, corruption, television, movie sets. And I think what I love about your story so much, and you just touched upon it with like Mojo and everything, is that the plots and the villains are sort of metatextual for real life problems and real life situations that that is doomed to repeat itself over and over again, sort of the nasty parts of human behavior. Yeah, I think that part of the creation of Longshot had to do with like I was I was the editor of you know, for many years on different books, assistant editor on books and then editor. And I think I had a problem with um, the big power guys, you know, even though I wrote Daredevil and Wolverine and Punisher and I wrote all these guys, I, I wanted a character that wasn't, whose power wasn't innately violent you know, like claws, guns, you know, all this stuff. So I wanted, I, I thought, okay, what would it be like to be the luckiest guy in the room? And I think that was like his, his power. And of course, Art Adams, you know, the, the, the blessing of being teamed up with Arthur Adams, who a lot of like the, the reason I think that Longshot got popular during the period he did was because of Art Adams' art. You know, Chris was like drooling as every page came in from Arthur and was like, can he finish please so I can have him, you know? <laughs> Chris like just wanted him so bad and wanted Arthur, I mean, but he also, you know, was enchanted by Longshot. And I think Longshot also... He works as a kind of a straight man in big violent stories. He he's kind of like in a, in some strange way the straight man in the room. And in the and this series I kind of play with the idea of, you know, when Spiral gets on his case for being messianic. You know, there's like another level of like, you know, I'm the I'm the revolutionary, you know, and it's a little bit messianic, so I play with that a little bit. And um, the real world stuff, I think, you know, when I was rereading the series, the issue that hit me as the strongest issue was the simple story of Elliot, the guy who it just was suddenly like, because what I was trying to say there was because 
I guess there were a lot of things about comics that I was nervous about. I was nervous about the power fantasy level of them. I was nervous about the notion of they're all bigger and better than us. And so I wanted to do one story where you really see how even a nice, you know, hapless little creature like Longshot can glow so bright that he just shadows everything else around him. So I think that's that's where Elliot came from. And it's funny, there was a there was this sort of beloved um person in the Marvel bullpen, Elliot Brown, who is just really smart. And he's the one who who drew a lot of the um the schematas or whatever you want to call them for like the Baxter building and all the, you know, he, he worked on the Marvel universe books, you know, where there were, you know, how the blackbird worked, how the, and he would draw all that that stuff. And he, he was like a delightful person to have around really smart. And he wasn't a conspiracy theorist, but we used to have talks like that. And so I kind of based him on, this guy who was just in the bullpen, none, none of the home life stuff or the suicidal <laughs> stuff, you know, but even the suicide in that was so kind of, I mean, you can't really call suicide sweet, but it was kind of like the way he decided that why live, you know, yeah. If, I to, yeah. if I have to brush my teeth every day for the rest of my life, why live? And then the television, it was like a connection to Mojo and how he was, he, you know, he pulled an Elvis, you know, he shot his TV and then, you know, he long shot lures him on an adventure. And it really was a way of, telling you more about Longshot by how Longshot appears to an ordinary guy who really doesn't want to be heroic. But in a weird way, Longshot saves his life, saves him from killing himself because he kind of goes home happy to just go back and buy a new TV and sit on his couch. Yeah, there's that weird irony there where he's here like... (laughs) So you're like, I don't want to be someone like you. I'm fine. Yeah. Thanks. Peace. But yeah, the way that Longshot's powers worked as well, like when Theo, I believe his name is, is going to jump off the bridge, he crashes onto Longshot. And right. I and he was like, oh, I'm so lucky. <laughs> you know, what, yes. what were the odds? Yeah. And I love that thinking of Longshot's power as being sort of more passive and I, I think it's mentioned in in the issue before, be more pure when it when it's undisruptive. It's something that comes from the good inside of him. And he saves this person, Theo, who is trapped in the cycle of like, man, the idea of brushing my teeth, which is such yes. a symptom of depression, you know, yeah. being rescued by Longshot when Longshot was knocked out. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it's just sort of it's it's, you know, the cliche is absolute power corrupts absolutely or something like that Uh it's um you know you see people today i mean we're in the middle of a of the big the great twitter meltdown because (laughs) you know someone decided that you know this thing that was helping so many people i mean as much of a mosh pit that twitter is it did inspire things like 
Arab gave Arab Spring traction. You know, there's a lot of like we all dip into it to to find out what each other are thinking. And it also was a great boon for indie creators who, you know, don't have PR budgets and can like try to, you know, do something to break out of the noise. And the idea that this guy just decided to buy it and and burn it, it's like the old... Um, what did they used to call those like CEOs that would buy a company and gut it? And there was a phrase for, for that. Oh, uh, like, like corporate raiders. Yes. Yeah. yeah. It's almost like corporate raider, you know, okay, I'll buy it. And oh, man, you know, I, I think I'll just destroy it, you know, and declare bankruptcy or whatever he's up to. It's such a grandiose act of cruelty on the world. So the love yeah. power. So if you found out you were like insanely lucky, I mean, you could become power mad easily. Like yeah. you could just like play the whole play the world. I mean, if Longshot was a villain and at the very end of the X Legends series, I have, you know, a spiral hint about that. Like she said, I'll be bringing you back for the sequel, Dark Charm or whatever it is like. Because, you know, the idea of a dark long shot, like what if he was suddenly a villain and used his power of luck, you know, in, uh, you know, as a as a as a narcissist king baby. So I think that was like the idea that the more he used it, it if he didn't use it in good ways, it would backfire. I think that was like sort of building in a loophole so that because um, you because powers need limits. Yeah. You can't keep one-upping your powers. So there are certain characters, if they enter the room, game over, you know? So, you know, I didn't want him to be that kind of a character. Yeah, I, I mean, what you're saying about, about Twitter, it is very uh, almost like Mojo-esque, where it, it is, you know, the desire to control this platform and then just destroying it because you can yeah. um and you know that that was certainly in the atmosphere in the 80s with stuff like corporate rating and that like was that sort of atmosphere an inspiration for for mojo it was definitely an inspiration for him back then and i can certainly see him doing exactly what elon musk is doing it's like <laughs> just saying you know what i'm just gonna like destroy my own universe, you know, <laughs> but, um, and you know, it's just so strange now with all his Teslas going up in flames and <laughs> like the most amazing legendary meltdown. It really is got quite the comic book, you know, <laughs> feeling to it. Um, and then certainly Mojo, I, you know, I definitely adapted him for this age. I was thinking of a certain, you know, person sitting in the Oval Office watching TV, you know, all the time. You know, that was sort of like he's he definitely it's weird. He was created almost what, 35, 40 years ago as a commentary on what seems like just innocent people now, you know, like the yeah. early and 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 he's now like <laughs> You know, every age has its mojo. So 
fast forward 30 years and you know so i mean you mentioned before we're getting to work with with art adams on this like did he did he bring sort of like uh, a perspective to it to to long shot that you hadn't considered oh, yeah no the whole series the whole <laughs> series is arthur it's like <laughs> I mean, this series drawn by anyone else would have been a completely different. And, you know, it when we were working on the first issue and he was just sending me monster after monster after monster, I mean, he and he designed all of it. And, um, you know, and also it was like this notion of that the, the fact that Longshot had one glowing eye like, you know, he made that into something so epic that, you know, there have been characters that are created, you know, even today with glowing eyes or stars yeah. around their eyes because of what Arthur did, you know. He's the one who made that work. And, I mean, Mojo is sort of like um, repulsive, you know. I mean, he's so repulsive. And... This time I sort of like, I opened the series a little bit with some fat shaming because I wanted to like say, maybe this, that was like a meta line because maybe this original comic had a little bit too much fat shaming going on. <laughs> <laughs> and, and fat shaming is such a big cultural topic topic right now, not only historically in the last few years, but with Taylor Swift and her music video. Yeah, and also with with uh, I think her name is Lizzo, right? Where it's yeah. just like body empowerment, you yeah. know, like this is this is who I am. So, you know, it when you only have two issues of something, you can't get into everything I wanted to get into. But that would have been another thing that I got into, you know. Um, and also like Javier Pina. I mean, what are, I'm probably saying his name wrong, but like he brought like this gravitas to the whole thing that like and the expressions on the faces you know and also throwing stuff at him when i just said you know i'd like you i'd like you to design the spiral verse you know and i think it's gonna have so it's like maybe a mobius strip and a double helix and you know and and he just like ping there it is i mean it just just all those characters that he had to design all the new looks for them, the tattoos. And he did this whole thing where the they start out in the war zone in the war movie, very gray, and they the color comes back as as Kitty and Wolverine realize they're being duped, their color starts to come back and the tattoos phase fade. And there's all these details in it that um you really have to uh, look at look at the art carefully to see all the things that he's done that are just masterful. So I was pure joy working with him. Yeah, love, I, I have to tell you, with art and Javier like writing or excuse me, drawing and rendering long shot, it's been such a joy, especially with having you there. I have a question about like that the first issue of Long Shot One where. You know, we know existentialism is a big part of the long shot experience, especially going into the series. What I'm curious as a writer, though, what what do you have left with the character when you strip them of so much? I mean, long shots confused by mannequins. He doesn't even know what the sun is. He doesn't even know his own name. 
yet it works so well when you write him. And I'm curious, like as a writer, is that intimidating when the character's so bare? And and where do you go with that? Part of it is because I was so young. I mean, me and Arthur were like babies. I mean, it was like our first book. And, you know, I think I just threw a bunch of concepts at the wall. You know, (laughs) I, I, I sometimes think of it as like, you know, that era, the 80s, was like the legendary punk era when we were all going to CBGBs and I went to see so many punk bands and a lot of like people just were like doing whatever they wanted on stage, even if they couldn't play their instruments, you know, so there was a sort of like a sensibility of the time of like, because there were no movies yet and you could express yourself in a comic because it was a throwaway medium. It was yeah. like, it was going to go in the garbage heap. It was, there wasn't this sense that they were going to be, they were going to become movies or toys or animation or any of this stuff. It was just like, let's try this out. Let's have fun. Let's bang. Let's do a garage <laughs> band comic, you know, and then like throw it away. So I don't, I don't, I, again, what I I can't access what I was thinking back yeah. then, yeah. but I have a feeling it was pretty instinctual rather than that well thought out. So, you know, I once long shot, once I decided he's a tabula rasa, it's kind of an existential thing. He's not mm-hmm. going to have a big, like, macho power. He's going to have this more like delicate mystical power. Um, and then just rolled with it. And as as the story progressed and art drew things, you know, I really don't remember. I think probably uh, Louise Simonson, Chris Claremont, Art, art Adams, and me would just yak. And things would come out of that. So my God, to be a fly on the wall <laughs> with those conversations. Yeah, and it's, yeah, it's sort of like, you know, you just can't remember. I wasn't keeping any notebooks. I don't yeah. remember. And, you know, Chris, Chris did keep notebooks. It's funny because I went one time, Karen Green, who has the Columbia archives, invited me. There was a show that had some of Chris's archives of his notebooks. And it was mm-hmm. just like how he would write all the like Cyclops and Madeline and, you know, Jean Grey, and then make these charts and arrows and the possibilities of where they could go. And I was just like, oh yeah, I remember. We would go to lunch and he would just start like doing these insane charts. And so there is, you can see Chris's process in those notebooks, but I don't actually have anything from back then. Well, you know, as a reader who grew up, you know, reading Longshot, I I just feel like there is this Salinger, Holden Caulfield quality to him of the search for innocence. And, you know, I, I don't know why I harp on that scene with the mannequins, but I, yeah. in my head, I sort of liken it to Holden asking the taxi cab driver, like, what happens to the ducks, you know, <laughs> during winter and, and, and yeah. something like that with, with yeah. Longshot. That's a beautiful thought. What happens to the ducks? Yeah, that is really sweet. Yeah, that's a very long shot line. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, Um, I mean, you know, it's 
if I if I do another long shot story, I think I'm going to face him a little more directly. Okay. You know, I think I was just too excited by Spiral and Major Domo. <laughs> <laughs> you, know? you have no complaints from us on that. No. It was funny because at some point, you know, when I was turned in the first plot and Mark and Drew being such great editors, they were kind of like, um, like you're kind of ignoring long shot. <laughs> Can you put a little more long shot in? And, you know, they, they were constantly like, well, you think we could have some lines about long shot? <laughs> you know, I mean, I don't know what it is about long shot. I don't think he weathered well. You know, I don't think he he's like he's of his time. And I don't I don't really know if there's a place for him in today's landscape like. And I, I haven't read his appearances for 30 years. So other than what Chris did when I was the editor, which was kind of like having fun, you drop Longshot into a group of characters and everyone is going to get crushes on him, male, female, young, old. And I think that that's maybe would be a fun Longshot story just about how he kind of like, he kind of gets everybody's like, desire awakened he's a social know? media star he he has a huge instagram following mm. there you go and mojo <laughs> is trying is he is a dark andy cohen trying to get him on a reality tv show <laughs> is that going on in this in the <laughs> no it's not no. at all no oh, but that would but, be a great yeah that would be a great way to play him like literally like if if a innocent sex bomb can enter a room and wreck havoc, it would be long shot. <laughs> but you know, the, 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 these concepts you're talking about with long shot, I'm sorry, Scott, I'll kick it to you. But no. with, with him being Ziggy Stardust, non-binary sort of yeah. gender fluid, those are such big conversation points in today's world. And yeah. thinking of long shot as sort of emblematic of something like that. I mean, I can see him with a TikTok. You know what I mean? And and having a very riveting story like that because this, you know, X-Men Legends and the original is a commentary yeah. on on the world and on media. And you just framed it in such a really interesting way, which was back then we were all consumed with television. I remember yeah. your, your schedule revolved around whatever TV guide said, you know yeah. what I mean? And now it's this at yeah. three in the morning, you know, and, and we just keep consuming, consuming. And I wonder what is that story with someone like Longshot and being a byproduct now of, of this era? Well, a couple things about that. One of the, what, I mean, the seeds, this, I don't know if you know the work of David Aha, but yeah, this, yeah. Yeah. actually this looks like it's the uh, French version of seeds, but um, it's been translated now into um Portuguese, Italian, French, Spanish, but the seeds with David Aha is we definitely explored um, that end of technology moment when people just want to throw their technology away. There's a whole zone where we call them, you know, it's like a neo-Luddite movement where people just say no more surveillance, no more screens. And so I did, I was able to kind of deal with a modern version of that in the seeds. And, um, but the other thing, Bowie, who David Bowie represented, that was pretty alive on the streets in New York. You know, you had Lou Reed, Walk on the Wild Side, you know, you had 
the Pyramid Club. I mean, my friends, we were going to the Pyramid a lot where there were like drag shows. And one of the things to understand is that in the 70s, it was illegal for a man to wear female clothes. It would get you thrown in jail. And this is these this is like this 80s New York that was still going on. Cops would beat up on any man that was wearing. Uh, so, you know, it's like these things were not just around in the 80s. They were talked about constantly because you had um it was a sensibility that was being beaten and jailed and you know so that is kind of a that's kind of what i was thinking about at the time with wanting to do something with longshot where he represent but there wasn't much you could do in comics back then i couldn't come out and say it you know um i did you know put a trans character into a typhoid story and somehow it just kind of got through the uh, the guarded gates and you know it's but there you couldn't really do a lot of that stuff I kind of I kind of even think what was it North Star or whatever one of the first mm -hmm. gay characters were I think there was some kind of because we were still part of the um the comics code. code authority yeah. yeah you know so like these this stuff was all over the place in indie comics but at marvel comics they were like proceeding with caution you know on a lot of this stuff and so it's awesome for me to look at comics today you know and see what's going on i mean it's just like completely like spectacular well, I love what you just said about Longshot being this like countercultural figure. And I didn't know that that it was illegal to wear women's clothing in the 80s. Well, in, the in New York, of all things. I think 79. Or, yeah. But but it, even though the law was changed, you and I think it had became technically legal in the 80s. You know, you would still get beaten up and harassed for wearing a dress you know well thank you for creating a character like Longshot, having a trans individual in your typhoid <laughs> marriage i mean that sort of courage and fortitude is why we have modern comics the way they are so thank you for being a pioneer oh well i don't know you know it was just my life because i had a lot of gay, <laughs> I had a lot of gay friends the trans girl was, was um was based on someone i knew i mean it was just yeah. sort of my life i didn't think of it as at all um future thinking i just yeah. thought this is what's here and like everything else like in the daredevil comics it's all what was right there in new york it's very like documentary style like you know and the issues in those comics like factory farming that was a brand new thing in the 80s so i did an animal rights story from from that point of view um and it's strange how nothing has changed <laughs> Yeah, I mean, really, the only thing that's changed is Daredevil's Hell's Kitchen is very, very different nowadays, just as like a uh, as like a neighborhood. Um, but when when you were writing the original Longshot mini, uh, like at what point did you consider doing like a spinoff? Or I know there was like a sequel that was possibly planned. Yeah, 
I think what happened was um, Arthur and I had wanted to do a graphic novel next. Like there were only, it was just the beginning of graphic novels. There were of course graphic novels in indie comics like Mouse, I think had come out, Art Spiegelman's book and Epic, which was Archie Goodwin and, and Joe Duffy's domain within Marvel. They were kind of like the vertigo of Marvel. And I had done Someplace Strange with John Bolton as a graphic novel. And there was like, I think Mike Kaluta and Elaine Lee did Starstruck and um, Jim Starlin and, you know, different, there were only like, it was like Marvel's first 10 graphic novels. Um, Super Boxers was one that Ron Wilson uh, pitched and and I did out of my office. That was another. So we were going to do like graphic novel number 11. You know, there were so few of them at that time. And it was going to be um, the next chapter of Long Shots. It sort of it was more about the rebellion on Mojo World. And Arthur did the most amazing layouts that to me look like Alex Toth or something. They were just so black and white graphic gorgeous, but I, you know, his style is very labor intensive and he, he wants his fans to get Arthur Adams in the details and I think at the same time, also, like I was saying about how Chris was like over my shoulder drooling at every page. And I think it just became like clear that it was a better move for Arthur and for Marvel too to start put to having him draw X-Men and the Asgardian stuff. And it just made more sense. And our, gra our little graphic novel kind of fell by the wayside. And I don't remember what it was about that well it, it, the long shot mini was it was it was very well received back in the 80s did you guys get a lot of traction and attention you know, from I fans i don't really remember because yeah. it was it was like we would get letters so yeah. you know it was the days of mail mailed in letters so there was one kind of compuserve i think it was called it was like an early um Twitter or something. <laughs> CompuServe had a lot of comic fans on it. And I didn't I don't even know how Chris would access it, but he would he would come into the office sometimes with these reams of what the old computer paper used to look like with the ratchets on the side. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And it would be like people talking about the X-Men. And I was like, where are you getting all this stuff? And he would be like, CompuServe. And I was like, what's that? I didn't even know what it was, you know. So, but mostly we got handwritten letters and I remember it was a, basically a positive response to Longshot, but especially to Arthur, you know, yeah. I mean, people just wanted more Arthur Adams and I don't, I don't remember any bad letters. Whereas um, when you did a regular book like Daredevil, a monthly from an iconic, you know, then you would get like a mix of good and bad letters. And the theory on letters pages back then was to always print a lot of the bad letters because you never wanted it to be like this dull, we love it, we love it, letters yeah. page. So you'll see in the letter page, there's often critical 
letters and that's on purpose you know you would you would find critical letters to make sure that it was kind of a balanced look at the character so you have chris over your shoulder salivating over art he's intrigued yeah. by long shot what was it like letting him take long shot because next time we see long shot is in the x-men annual and he would play yeah. a big part obviously in uh the australian x-men no, I mean, no, it was it was fun because yeah. I was the editor. It was fun. We were all in the same sandbox, yeah. you know, so the the sandbox was to a place to play. And I I did not know, obviously, at that time I left Marvel in like 89 to mm -hmm. go. And then I became a screenwriter and a journalist. And it, I spent 20 years pretty much out of comics and. I did not know that at the time, you know, that I was going to leave. <laughs> so I guess I always thought that we would do long shot again, if not with Arthur, with someone. Mm -hmm. um, but no, I never had that kind of, um, you know, possessiveness of characters. You write their work for hire. So you throw them back into the into the uh, the playground. And then you hope somebody doesn't like rip them to shreds with people do all the time. They take characters, they kill them, they destroy them. Now everybody's resurrected, right? Yeah. 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 On Krakoa, everyone can just like yeah. come back to life. I don't know. I, I mean, I think it's fun, but I also wonder, I guess, has death lost its meaning completely? I mean, it used to mean a lot, death. Like, yeah. you know, Jean Grey with the Dark Phoenix saga. I mean, and the Electra. I mean, those were profound comic book deaths that were respected and the death would be held for a long time. So I don't know. I, what I've been okay with it. I, I like the idea of, you know, in comic books at, at this point, like death is sort of like a cliche thing. So yeah. I'm fine. If you want a tool like in the back so writers can really bring back characters who are beloved and death is impermanent. But I just don't think the concept has been 110% executed well. It's sort of like kind of like a South Park, you know, who killed Kenny, you know, kind of like, you know, Wolverine dies, you know, Kid Omega dies a lot and they're instantaneously resurrected. And um, okay. I believe the editorially it was supposed to be just a way for writers to avoid killing characters and tell other kinds of stories with these. So from that regard, I love it, but I think the writers are leaning too into it as a gag and as a safety net. Well, it's um, because, um, you know, when coming back to the X-Men, doing the X-Men Legends, uh, Mark and Drew sent me a bunch of comics and I think, you know, I started reading like a bunch of X-Men and really, really kind of loving everything that everyone is doing. I mean, I'm trying to remember that like Teeny Howard and Vita Ayala, I think. Yeah, Dugan, Leah Williams. Leah Williams, Leah Williams. And so I, I kind of, and I think I had been on a Cerebro podcast and I love Connor you know, so he, I, I think a long time ago, he had, I said, what should I read? And he recommended a lot of those writers. And I so I sought them out and started reading. And then I'm, I'm like, this is amazing. This is so great that these new voices are taking over the X-Men. I mean, 
I'm I have not run into Chris lately at a convention. I don't know. I'd be fun to ask him what he thinks about it, but I think it's just a blast where they're taking I think he's very opinionated on the current direction of yeah. X-Men, but... You know, he wrote those characters for yeah. almost, for what, a decade and a half or something. You know, yeah. they were his babies and it, it all consuming, all consuming. You know, at the time, I mean, between the New Mutants, the X-Men, the limited series, miniseries, the crossovers, the annuals. I mean, he was he was the mastermind of so much of it. So... Yeah, he he's heavily invested. And I don't know what happened, how he got booted out, but I imagine that was pretty traumatic. So you know? tough. But at the same time, you have to let new voices in. As you can yeah. see, the current yeah. X-Men, you have to let new voices in. They're writing stuff that I would never write. I wouldn't even yeah. think to write, you know? So. And I think that's one of the most beautiful aspects of having a shared universe of, of comics where so many writers can come in and, you know, the X-Men that we're reading today are very different from the X-Men Scott and yeah. I grew up with from the ones that you were editing and writing back in the 80s. So, yeah, I mean, listen, it's this is why the brand and the comics endure and why we're still here talking about it. So. Yeah, <laughs> like for somebody who doesn't if you don't like the stories, just don't read them. I mean, that's what upsets me when, you know, I see someone getting like trashed to the point of death threats on oh. the, the mosh pit of Twitter. I'm like, well, just don't read it. Like if I don't like an author, I don't read them. Don't support them. It's yeah. that easy. You really, like, you really want to get someone booted. Don't buy their book. Don't let them yeah. have that revenue. Yeah, it's sort of like, you know, you have to allow a lot of voices and then you follow the voices you like. It's like it's like going to the library, for Christ's sake, you know, we we had a an, a writer who was sort of like the beta getting so much hate on the Internet for the first time, Chuck Austin. And he was, I mean, slaughtered to the point that when when he came on the show, he was he like, do people even like do, do people even want to hear me? It's like, yes, of course. Like, you well, should not be bully like that. He wrote Uncanny X-Men. Oh, and people didn't like what he did. Yeah, they just did. And they were very vicious about it. And he was like, I was just hired. I was trying to do these things, blah, blah, blah. That, that He's a writer. And, and he did not talk about the X-Men for a very long time. Well, it's interesting because I got a certain amount of that when, it, like, I don't know, I guess it was a decade ago when Bob Harris and Dan DiDio brought me into the New 52 at DC. Mm -hmm. And I wrote a bunch of books and, you know, the I, I, I liked what they were doing. They were trying to say... We need to reboot in a in a way where we go back to when these characters were young. Mm -hmm. So my assignment was, what if Green Arrow had all this money, but he was just like a young playboy? I think they said, write him like he's James Bond across, you know, or something. Yeah. And, you know, you get an assignment like that as a writer, you just try and do your job. Yeah. And then they gave me Catwoman and they said, she's not a sophisticated th thief. She's young and she keeps making mistakes. So you do that. And I think that the, that they're, they were so far from the what Green Arrow had become, 
you know, this lean, mean, stealthy, you know, social justice warrior dude. But it just was too jarring a transition. So a lot of the of the new 52 writers, we got slammed. Yes, you did. Brutally <laughs> slammed. And, you know, in hindsight, there there was there was truth to it because you know, but at the same time, you the DC was trying to do something to keep the characters young and relevant. And did it work? Not really, but I don't really fault them for trying, and I don't fault the writers and the artists for trying. And, you know, we kind of knew, even at the time, that it wasn't really working, you know, I think. And, you know, I still had a blast, especially on Catwoman with Rafa Sandoval. We still had a blast doing it. And, it just sometimes that's the way it goes. And I, at the time, I remember thinking, you know, I've done, I have a tough skin at this point in my life. If I had been like, if this had been my first comic, yeah, it would have been, you know, kind well, of. And you could have shut it out a couple of decades ago or a couple of years ago, even. But now with like Twitter, Instagram, all these platforms, yeah. they're yeah. coming at you. People can find you on the internet. They can send you stuff to your email and stuff like that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You can't yeah, no, escape I it. Definitely, I was definitely getting death threats. And oh, at one point I had this one guy who tracked me down and he was like, you know, it's just not the cat woman I know. And I just, I just for the, oops, I just for the heck of him said, well, what cat woman is your cat woman? <laughs> like, well, she was obviously a prostitute. And I was just like, you know, I'm not doing that Catwoman. I'm not <laughs> doing like, you know, the tricks and Johns of Catwoman's life. You know, that wasn't like, it, 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 it is just like, that's what you're mad at, that she's not turning tricks, you know? <laughs> I love that. I'm, a, I'm sorry that happened to you. Yeah. B, that is your approach <laughs> and response to that is hysterical and inspirational right there. Yeah, and um, I think that it's really important for young creators to be fearless, to just say, yeah. you know what, if I get death threats and people hate what I'm doing, like, just that's their problem, you know, just like, do an honest assessment of your own work, like, where did I go wrong? Like, I don't like those Green Arrow stories I told, they're like, something wrong with them, you know, but just look at it honestly, and then do better next time. And sort of like wrapping up, like, what do you hope uh, our readers take away from uh, the long shot mini? Oh, from back then? From back yeah. then, or even now, or even with or long even shot. now, yeah, yeah. I mean, I guess, I guess for both series, it, it you know, the first one was definitely a contemplation on, you know, what is a superhero and why do they have to be these big, powerful, macho creatures, you know, even the females kind of macho. So I think it was kind of like there are other forms of heroes that would maybe fit into a superhero universe that don't have to have the macho sensibility, obviously. And then I guess both series both look at, you know, the unintended consequences of technology. And I think you can go all the way back in history to um, every, the technological age, you know, the original Luddites were 
you know, angry that they were losing their jobs to automated, I think it was looms. It was like weaving looms that were taking jobs away from people who made cloth. And, you know, it's, it's the unintended consequences, obviously, of back then we didn't think that, gee, someday tech can change an election, you know? Oh. And yeah. now with this AI diffusion and how like there is now a machine learning AI that scans and swipes and rips off every single artist's work through history and creates like these Frankenstein monster works of art that are basically ripping off every creator. I mean, that it, to me, it's scary for, for comic book artists, for illustrators, for art itself, if we're teaching machines how to just, I mean, it takes 12, what is it, 12 seconds, two minutes. You just put your prompts in, you know, wow. and it spits out the artwork. And then now I was reading, you know, I saw the first AI movie and then I was reading this piece about how, hey, how great an indie filmmaker can just put Scarlett Johansson into their movie, you know? Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I mean, we're seeing that even in the Star Wars franchise. Like you can, they're doing younger Luke Skywalker. Yeah. They're, and it's, it looks great. I mean, you know, obviously it's AI, but like for all intents and purposes, the technology is only going to get better and better in the years to come. And the, and the thing about the better and better is the unintended consequences. Absolutely. It's like we cannot see and that um, Instagram, you know, so many during the pandemic, uh, I talked to a lot of young people who were measuring their lives by Instagram. And if yeah. they were trapped in a solo pod and not going out, they were in a lot of mental trouble. And these are like, things that there's no foresight and the foresight is of course impossible to have but you know there we should be at this point have learned enough to have a little foresight to know that these deep fake images and films it's going to blow back on us i i agree you know what's so terrifying is that a lot of these deep fakes that's obvious to some people it's just not obvious to a lot and and rightfully so there there's some things that if i saw a deep fake of and i didn't have a general knowledge of i would just be like okay sure move along yeah, but it it is horrifying that it hits on a political scale and you know all that misinformation it's yeah it, it is it is an apocalyptic mindset that we are yeah. definitely finding ourselves in and thank you so much for being on the pod. We love Longshot. Oh, we now we now know why because I we could be talking to you for hours and hours. But I know we're going a little over here. What is there? Is there anything you can tease on a return to the X books? Will we see you again? Will we see that dark there, Longshot yeah, story? Definitely, there's something happening uh, that I can't talk about yet, but I'm definitely going to be. Yeah, I'm doing more stuff for Marvel. Yeah, I mean, it's really, it's really strange because this was my life for a decade. These characters, they lived in my head. You know, I walked the streets of New York seeing them everywhere in my mind, you know, and so it's, 
it's been really sweet to be embraced again by Marvel Comics, especially because Mark and uh, Drew are such, they're such great editors. So, you know, it's, it's, it's really been a pleasure, you know, so yeah, well, I'll be doing more. Yeah. When we said that you were going to be on the podcast, I mean, you saw some of the preliminary questions we sent over. People wanted to know about your time as an editor. People wanted to know about Beauty and the Beast. So we will definitely love to see you back on the books. Yeah. Have I, you I back here. I apologize for that. I'd have to, I'll reread Oh, don't apologize at all. Why? I'm back. I just have to reread it. That's all. No, we'll have you back again to talk about Beauty and the Beast. Okay. But so why don't you tell us about Hero Initiative? So Heroes, Hero Initiative is um, started by Jim McLaughlin, and it, there's a it's a group of um, creators that are on the board. I'm on the board at Hero Initiative, and what we do because a lot of the old timers, you know, there's no pensions or healthcare or, you know, and it's a freelance work for hire industry, like being a singer, dancer, artist, or so Hero Initiative was um, established to help creators in need. So if you have, you know, you broke your arm and you can't draw for a while or you just can't make your comics for whatever reason. So we do auctions, um, sell artwork. And I we just did a big auction at Baltimore Con. And the reason that it's funny is that the Big Apple Con is there's a creator, I think his name is James, I'm sorry, Levi James or something like that. He made a mojo and it is a, a spectacular cosplay build. So on December 17th, I'm going to be at Big Apple Con with Mojo doing um, signings and photos for Hero Initiative so we can you know, it'll all go into the, the pot for future creators, comic creators in trouble and in need. So. And that website is heroinitiative.org. So everyone listening, go check it out, donate, support your favorite creators, making sure that they have everything they need. Yeah. Thank you.